happy Father's Day. And we hope you have a wonderful day and enjoy the service. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me any more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. morning and let me extend a warm welcome to you all. We are glad that you are able to join us. 
We've been uh, looking at the book of Ephesians now as a church for a number of weeks, and one of the the themes of that book is how, as a church, we are a family, uh, and as a family, we rejoice together and we grieve together. And recently, we have been grieving the loss of Enid Wilcox, uh, whilst rejoicing at the same time that she is now with uh, her Savior Jesus, whom she worshipped. And I've been asked by her family just to express uh, their, their thankfulness uh, and how blessed they have been by uh, the cards and text messages and phone calls and emails that they have received over the last week. Uh, they thank you for those messages and they thank God for their church family uh, that he has given them. But do uh, continue to hold uh, the Wilcox family up in your prayers. Uh, thinking about the theme of family, uh, this morning Paul the Apostle is going to teach us in Ephesians about marriage and how marriage is this living drama uh, that points to the great love that Jesus has for his church. Uh, in pointing this out, Paul will be referring back to creation when marriage was instituted by God. And our Bible reading this morning is taken from that account. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. And Kevin's going to read that to us. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, otherwise, if you haven't got a Bible, then please just listen along as Kevin reads this passage to us. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, Paul will mention this passage when we come to Ephesians. But Jesus also refers back to this when he is asked about divorce. He emphasizes in that passage a high view of marriage, saying, 
that it is for life. If marriage pictures Jesus and his people, then faithfulness in marriage images God's faithfulness to us. Today is also Father's Day. Faithfulness is also an attribute of a good father, and one which is fulfilled perfectly in our Heavenly Father. Our next song sings of this wonderful faithfulness of God. Great is thy faithfulness. After we've sung this, Megan is going to lead us in a word of prayer. Holy God, we come to you today as your people who are deeply concerned for our nation and our world. We are concerned for those whose health and lives are vulnerable at this time and those left isolated during lockdown. We are troubled as daily we see reports of brutality and anger, riots and destruction in our cities. We cry out for the 207,384 babies 
who were aborted this year in our country alone, with no one to mourn or protest their killings. And we ache when we hear the news that our parliament has decided to support no-fault divorce, a move that will further undermine your good gift of marriage in our land and leave victims of abuse with even less, with even less protection. Lord, we pray with Daniel, who identified with his own sinful people. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. And yet, like Daniel, we have hope because the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. So we come before you today and ask for your mercy. We ask you to give wisdom to our leaders as they make decisions regarding health care, schools, jobs, churches, and the economy. In your mercy, we pray for a reopening of our nation and an ability to join our community fully again. We plead for you to bring your spirit of reconciliation to our land. Raise up men and women who will stand positively for both justice and peaceful reconciliation. In your mercy, convict our nation that the lives of unborn babies matter too. And we ask that you will convict our lawmakers and judges of the appalling inconsistency and injustice that allows this Holocaust to continue. We pray too for the women whose lives have been devastatingly affected by abortion. Help them, Lord, to seek and to be assured of the forgiveness, comfort, and peace that they need when they seek it in Jesus. Help your church to hold out arms of hope and love, to offer our homes and our love and support to children and mothers in crisis. And we ask you to raise up leaders who will stand for biblical marriage and family. Give them the courage to stand against the tide that is undermining your good foundations so that our future generations may be blessed and not harmed. Lord, we pray for marriages today within our own church family. We praise you for the good examples, for those who represent the relationship between Christ and the church well, however imperfectly. We thank you for those who have celebrated golden anniversaries and many years of faithfulness. We pray for grace for those marriages which are struggling. May your spirit grant patience and repentance and forgiveness. Bring a new life and joy into marriages where your people are seeking you. We pray for those who have experienced or are currently experiencing broken marriages. Lord, comfort and encourage them. Help them to find their fulfillment and peace in you. We pray for those who are not yet married. Father, help them to trust you with their future and to seek to honor and follow you in order to become the man or woman of God you would have them to be. And Lord, we also lift up to you those in our church family who carry loads that only you may know or fully understand. We pray for those who feel crushed under heavy and distressing burdens. Father, in your mercy, be their burden-bearing God. We pray again with Daniel. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your people bear your name. Amen.
turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5, and this morning we're going to look at verses 21 down to verse 33. If you were to explain to someone who does not understand what a relationship with Jesus is like, how would you explain it? What illustration might you use to help them understand? Well, Paul the Apostle explains it today in terms of marriage. Marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife, is a picture that depicts the relationship between Jesus and his people. Marriage is designed by God as a painting, or more accurately, perhaps a living drama, of the way that Jesus and his people relate to each other. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the second half of the book of Ephesians, which is about how we are to live our lives as Christians. And last week, that life was talked about as being a life filled with the Spirit, a life that is dominated by the Spirit of God living in us. When Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, he is saying, do not be under the influence of that, Instead, we are to be under the influence of the Spirit. And from verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, until the middle of chapter 6, we see what this looks like in our homes and our workplaces. Husband and wife, parents and children, slaves and masters. And this week, as we look at the home, we are going to look at what we could describe from this uh, passage in Ephesians as spirit-filled marriage. But as we look at this, we need to understand uh, two very important things before we read this passage. We are reading God's Word as a people who Paul has described in chapter 4 and verse 23 as people who are made new in the attitude of our minds. We've had a mindset change when we become Christians. And that's important because, first of all, what we read in these sections uh, from this verse in chapter 5 down to chapter 6 and verse 9 is very, very countercultural stuff. Some of what we hear from Paul might well unsettle us. It might not seem right because of how we are conditioned by the culture that is around us. But do not dismiss what we read here because we might feel that way. Often the way that we feel is that we want to rebel against what God says, especially in passages like this. But that's not proving that God is outdated, that he's wrong, that he's unjust in any way. What our feelings show is that our minds are corrupted by sin and we need to be renewed in our minds, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, and as he speaks of in other places like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Scripture is where our authority lies, not our culture. And the Scripture is written by a good and loving Father, who is telling us how to live as he made us to, how to thrive as a new humanity in the new clothes that we are dressed in that we saw in chapter 4. So that's the first uh, important point to mention. The second is this. This morning we're going to look at this subject of marriage and there are many, many who are, uh, people in our congregation who are not married. But marriage here paints a picture of how we relate to Jesus. And it shows the amazing love that he has for us as his church. And if we see this picture clearly, which I hope we shall, we all of us shall be blessed by the love of Christ and form a positive submission to him as his bride. Notice as we read how often Paul addresses a command to wives and to husbands and then follows it with the word as. So, as you do to the Lord, as Christ loved the church, or in the same way. 
So when we read these commands, we are also to read them in terms of how they relate to Jesus, how he relates to us, how we relate to him. And in that case, it is most applicable to all of us as Christians, whether we are married or not. So with those thoughts before us, let us read with renewed minds what Paul has to say in Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. The first point we see, though, in this passage that we've read is that people who are filled with the Spirit submit to one another as Christians. We see that in verse 21. What does the Bible mean, though, by submit? Well, here's a definition for you. Submission means to joyfully yield to someone else, putting yourself under them. It is renouncing your will for the sake of someone else. Let me repeat that. It say, uh, submission means to joyfully yield to someone else, putting yourself under them. It is renouncing your will for the sake of someone else. Now, it's worth also underlining, in light of that definition, some things that submission is not. Submission is not unthinking obedience. We are never, as Christians, called to do something without thinking or understanding. So, for example, we are called to submit to the governing authorities, but not without thinking. At the very least, we have to think if what we are being asked to do is dishonoring to God. Submission is not being walked all over or abused. Submission is never meant to be demeaning. And leadership is never to be free from challenges or questions. Submission is never grudging or is never meant to be grudging. We are not asked to submit to one another miserably just because we have to. No, we're to to submit to one another with joy. And then submission is never a sign of weakness or of being a lesser person. In fact, submission is something all of us are called to in different areas of our lives. And we'll see that as we go through this week and next week, different areas in life where we are called to submit, whether that be children or workers. And ultimately, all of us are called to submit to God himself. Submission is best defined by looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not in any way inferior to his Father, but he is fully and truly God. But within the Trinity, 
Jesus knowingly and joyfully submitted to the will of his Father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. That's the picture there of submission. Paul says in verse 21 that we are to adopt this posture to one another as Christians all the time. Now, this is basic and common New Testament teaching, preferring the needs of others above ourselves. And we do this, in verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. So, if you love Jesus and you revere him, you're following him as your king, you submit to one another. And in a marriage, this is mutual submission. And that's important to remember as well. Now, there are unique roles in a marriage, as we're going to see. But a husband and wife in a Christian marriage also adopt a posture to one another of mutual submission, as one Christian to another. Think of it another way. We read how a husband is called to love his wife. We're going to see that very soon. Does that mean that the wife doesn't need to worry about loving her husband? Of course she needs to think about that. She is called as a Christian to love her husband with a Christ-like love. However, within the marriage, there is a uniqueness in role as wife and as husband, which Paul draws out. And he draws this out, as I've already said, to, to paint this picture. As with Christ and the church, so with husband and wife. And Paul begins this painting with the role of the wife. He commands uh, wives to adopt a posture of submission. Look at verse uh, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, I've explained what submission is and what it isn't, and all this holds true for the way that a wife submits to the husband. But it's also worth pointing out two other important things from this verse. Uh, First of all, this is addressed to wives. Uh, Paul doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. This is a command for wives to adopt a a posture of submission to their husband that helps to paint the picture to the world around us and to one another of Christ and the church and how they relate. So it is not a weapon for husbands to use to get their own way. In fact, I think I'm speaking the truth when I say that when a, if a husband ever feels he has to ask his wife to submit, the problem is almost always with him. And we'll see why that is, really, when we look at how a husband should love his wife. So this is addressed to wives. But secondly, the submission here is to your own husband. Uh, throughout history, this verse has been misused to say that wives, uh, women, therefore, are to submit to all men. But in fact, this is only for wives to submit to their own husbands, not for women to submit to every man. In fact, this is the only case in the whole of the Scriptures where a woman has a role of submission that a man does not have as well. All of us, men and women, are called to submit to church elders, to parents, to governing authorities, to our bosses at work, and so on. So what is it that the wife is being commanded to do here? What's, what's different in the case of the submission of the wife? Well, this is a call to submit in the home to her husband's leadership and to help him carry out his leadership in a Christ-like way. We'll see how, we, we see how the role of wife is that of, of helper. So she's to help her husband fulfill his role, which we will see is to lead in a Christ-like way with a Christ-like love. This is not demeaning, but fulfilling the role of helper that God gave Eve, the first wife, at creation. Uh, And by the way, to show that this is not demeaning in any way, it's worth pointing out that the name of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus in John's Gospel is the name of helper. The Holy Spirit is not lesser. The Holy Spirit, just like Jesus, just like the Father, is fully and truly God. 
So this is an attitude of, how can I help my husband lead our home like Jesus leads the church? That's what's going on here. And this submission, Paul tells us, is as you do to the Lord. Now, this is not saying that the, our husbands are the Lord, but is saying that by submitting to your husband, it is part of your submission to the Lord. And that helps us also clarify what this submission is in a couple of other ways. This means then that you cannot submit to something which is ungodly. Your first submission is to the Lord. And this also means that submission is never to anything which is abusive or demeaning, whether that is physical or emotional or sexual. God never, ever calls anyone to submit to that in any way whatsoever. Rather, if that is your case, you should get to safety and you should seek help. That, that, that man will have to stand before God and give an account of how he might misuse a verse like this in that way. God is never asking anyone to do that. Well, in verse 23, Paul gives the reason why a wife is to submit to her husband. He says, for, or this is the reason, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Notice the picture being painted. Christ is the head of the church and the husband being the head of the wife paints that picture. When we read here of Christ though being savior, it doesn't mean in any way that the husband is the savior of the wife. Rather, what we're seeing here is that the headship of Christ is that of Savior. How is he Savior? He is by his self-sacrifice. He died for us on the cross. That's where we see the salvation, his death on the cross for our sins. And so it's pointing, Paul's pointing out that the, 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 the Christ-like love that we see in Jesus is shown in his sacrifice which we'll see is exactly what the husband is supposed to be. The church, God's people, submit to Christ. And so if this picture is going to work, then the wife must submit to her husband. And we read in verse 24 that she is to submit in everything. Now in everything, we could translate that as every sphere of life, not everything he says, because everything he says might not be appropriate. So for example, this doesn't include disobeying God. But this does mean when Paul writes in everything that wives are not to pick and choose in what ways they will submit, but rather they are to give themselves fully to their husbands. Just like we are to give ourselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the passage here as a whole, Paul is assuming that two believers are married to one another here. But this still applies to wives who are married to unbelievers. You are still called to paint this picture as far as you can, but not to disobey God. Peter, uh, Peter the apostle, speaks of marriage to unbelievers, uh, and he says that your godly conduct can be a, a witness to your unbelieving spouse. And so this still applies even if you're not married to a Christian. But marriage was designed by God as the way that a husband and wife are to relate to one another. These roles that are written here are what we were made for. And we read that in Genesis chapter 2 in our Bible reading earlier. But the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, we read how sin enters the world. And in doing so, the whole world, including marriage, has been upended. It's been turned upside down. God has not changed his design, but in our fallenness, we have adopted broken patterns in all areas of our behavior. And this is seen in marriage in particular, in the curse that was placed upon men and women after they sinned. The woman was told, your desire will be for your husband yet he will rule over you. Now, the desire here means that she will desire his position as leader in the home and try to put him down. 
And this verse also means that the fallen bent of the husbands will be to rule harshly rather than lovingly when he rules over her. But in Ephesians 5, Paul is showing us a restored order. God is recreating us to what he intends us to be in the first place, which is spirit-filled people. And in marriage, for the Christian, it looks like what Paul writes here. So wives, let me encourage you, based on what is in God's word, not just to see this as some old-fashioned and unjust command, but as our loving creator showing how we were made to be. Remember that when Paul talked about putting on the new self in chapter 4 and verse 24, he says it was created or tailor-made. This is how we are made to be. And all of us, whether we are married or unmarried, men or women, this is the posture that we are to take to Jesus in everything. This is the posture that we're to take in all the authority that God has placed over us because this is how God made us to be. Now, if that was all that Paul had pointed out, only part of the picture would have been painted. The wife is called to submit to her husband, but this husband also has a calling, and his calling paints the rest of the picture. Now, you might think that after calling the wife to submission, Paul might say, husbands, rule your wives. But that's not what he says, is it? Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. The calling for the husband here is to love his wife with a Christ-like love. Well, how does Jesus love his church? Paul says that Jesus gave himself up for her. He provided for his people's greatest need, forgiveness of sins, by dying for his people on the cross. He gave his life for the church. He was a servant. Now, a husband is to love his wife like this, to serve her. Can you see this is not a man barking orders from the couch, thinking that his wife just needs to submit to anything he says that she should be doing. This is a servant willing to die to himself for the love of his wife. Now, in applying this, it's important to point out that dying to self here is not just being willing to jump in front of a bus to save our wives. Now, of course, it would be that, but normally that doesn't happen, does it? Normally, what this means is that we are to die to ourselves in countless little ways, day by day by day. Many husbands and wives at the moment are locked in together, and there are many marriage problems. Men, I am sure that your wives would love you and find it most romantic for you to tell them, I would die for you. But right now, they would much prefer you to die to your own comfort, get off your backside, and help with the childcare and with the housework. They would like you to die to yourself and do the things that she's asked you to do, but you've kept putting off. She would much prefer you to run her a bath, cook her a meal, give her a break, and watch the film that perhaps she wants to watch. In fact, I would go as far as saying this. I would, uh, I would die for my wife if a bus was hurtling towards her. I would jump in front of that bus, push her out the way, and do everything I can to save her life. I would gladly do that. But it's easy to do that. It is far harder to give ourselves in these countless little ways, day by day. But this is not just about making your wife happy. That can actually be sinful, because sometimes just doing what a wife wants is many a husband's way to just having an easy life. This is about providing what your wife needs. And this means being concerned for her, her own spiritual health. 
which is like Jesus is with us. Notice how in verse 26, Paul says that Christ gave himself to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus gave himself for us to make us holy. That is to make us look like himself, pure and set apart for God's glory. His death provided cleansing from sin. That is what cleansing means here. Uh, With water through the word means that Jesus reveals himself through his word preached. And this is what enables us to be cleansed, which is what water baptism pictures. I take this to mean that a husband is to be concerned for his wife's holiness. That is, he is to see his leadership role as leading her to Jesus, which is the greatest need that she has. This is, after all, what Jesus does. He is concerned for our holiness. He makes us holy. Well, how do husbands lead in this way? Well, we lead like Jesus did, By showing and telling. Jesus showed us who God is, and Jesus told us who God is, and he left us with a record of it in the Bible. So husbands, this means speaking to your wife about Christian things, and taking an interest in her spiritual growth. This means reading the Bible to her, with her, and praying together. This means taking the lead in going to church, and prioritizing church in the family home. Primarily, it is being a man who is yourself captivated by Christ. One writer helpfully and challengingly says this to us husbands. When we men read verses 25 to 27 together, we cannot escape our huge responsibility. Is our wife more like Christ because she is married to us, or is she like Christ in spite of us? Whatever our effect, our call is clear, sanctifying love. Well, in verse 28, Paul says, in the same way, or just like Jesus, husbands are to love their wives like their own bodies. And Paul begins to explain the motivation for doing this. It is loving yourself to love your wife, because in marriage, your wife is part of you. Unless something is seriously wrong, we take care of our bodies, we we feed them, we care for them, Uh, we we wash, we brush our teeth, we exercise, and, and so on. Jesus, though, does not just think of his own body, he cares for the church as his own body. He provides for it, he cares for it. And the reason Jesus does is in verse 30, for we are members of his body. Jesus sees his people not just as a separate entity, but actually part of himself. And so to harm his people in any way would be to harm himself. And this is true of a husband in the way he treats his wife. As we shall see in a moment, there is a one flesh union in marriage. And so a husband who is not caring for his wife is not caring for himself. It is, in fact, self-harm. This is actually another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor means near one. And our wife is the nearest one we have. And so we should love her in this way. So husbands should be caring for and nurturing their wives like their own bodies. This means providing for their needs and not just thinking about your own. This doesn't necessarily mean that the husband must be the breadwinner and the wife has to stay at home. That doesn't always work and is more of a stereotype, I think. But rather this means that the husband is to be enabling the wife to fulfill her God-given role, both in the home, in the church, and in the world. To enable his wife to flourish in what it is that she is called to do by God. But in applying this, I don't think we need to only speak to husbands. I would speak also to young men. 
be this man now. Give yourself to others. Serve in the church and take responsibility. If you are living at home, love your parents like Christ loved the church. You will not wake up one day after your wedding as this kind of man. Be this man today. This means being the kind of man we have been reading about in Ephesians already in the church. Helping others to maturity. Putting off the old self and putting on the new. Young women, when considering marriage, look for this kind of man. You will not marry a perfect man, but neither should you go into a marriage determined to change a man. Do not marry a project. It is a recipe for heartache. Look for a man who is already striving for these things. And for all of us, let us thank God that Jesus does love us like this. You are loved by the perfect man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given himself for you and makes you holy so that you will be presented before God without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, this is all very countercultural, but it is also biblical. And this is the kind of spirit-filled marriage that is a witness to our world. This paints a picture. Spirit-filled marriages paint the picture of Christ and the church. Paul says that uh, in uh, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God instituted marriage. Marriage is defined here. It is one man and one woman creating a new family unit and is the context for sexual one-flesh relationships. And it is for life. Jesus tells us it's till death. This is how God designed marriage to be. In Genesis, the reason a man leaves his father and mother is to create a new family. But Paul outlines a deeper reason. It's a mystery that is contained within marriage. Now, we've seen the word mystery before in Ephesians. It is something that was hidden but now has been revealed. And what Paul says has now been revealed in the coming of Jesus is that marriage is a metaphor that stands for something more than just uh, earthly relationships. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. It is meant to be a living drama of how Christ and the church relate to each other. That's the real purpose of marriage. And so it is with the desire to live out that wonderful drama that Paul concludes with verse 33. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Again, here we see the picture being painted. A loving husband whose love is responded to with respect or honor by a wife. Now, a marriage is a shadow that points to a far greater reality. And that is why this message is not just for the married. It's for everybody. Because this reality is something which all of us as Christians can experience where it, where, when we come to what Revelation describes as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where we will be with Jesus forever. Christian marriage, lived like Paul commands here, is something that can point to, and we can say, that's what Christianity is like. When we see a, a faithful marriage that has lasted for years and years, we can point to that and say, that is, that is what Jesus and the church is like. And it should make all of us long for the reality of the experience of union with Jesus. When you see a married couple loving each other 
painting this picture wonderfully, those who are not married even can look at that marriage and say, I'm so thankful that I will experience the reality of this, the greater reality of being with Jesus. And we experience that in part now as we're in relationship to Christ and we'll experience it fully in glory. That's why as well it's a tragedy when a marriage breaks down. It is like destroying a beautiful piece of art and insulting the one who made it. Now there will be many listening today for whom these words are hard. Not because you struggle to obey them, but because your marriage has broken. Many have husbands or wives who have been adulterous, abusive, or have abandoned them. Psalm 147 and verse 3 says this about our husband, Jesus. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He will heal our hearts. And to every brother and sister for whom this morning has opened up difficult wounds from broken marriages, abusive relationships, or lost loved ones, may you know this. We are all, as the church, the bride of Christ, and have a husband in heaven who will one day heal every heart of every member of the church, male and female, completely. We can look forward to that wonderful day. It will come. And may our own marriages reflect the restored order of creation in the here and now. And may those who are not married and no longer married or are in difficult marriages experience now the sweetness of being married to Jesus Christ and anticipate all the more in the future the day when we will see him face to face and have all of our longings fulfilled. Our final song looks forward to that greater reality which all of our marriages should be pointing to and talks about all those longings being fulfilled. Let's close with the song, There Is a Day.
Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen.